Well, for the next little bit, I want to take you uh, on a journey into Joshua. Let's take our Bibles, go to the sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua, and we're going to be in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. And as you dig in your Bibles and find that passage, I'm thinking about people in general but about us specifically, all of us want to be winners, don't we? We all want to win at life, at whatever game it is that we're going to play. None of us want to come in last, not even at the back of the pack. We want to win. I want to be average, said no kid ever, right? I want to get lost in the crowd, said no executive ever. We all want to win. And the story of Joshua is a story of God's people running out of slavery, going through a, a wilderness experience, getting up to the Jordan River, and a miracle, they get across the river, and they land in this land that's the promised land. And as they land in the promised land, now they, they take on Jericho, that was early in the book, and then they take on Ai, they lose a battle, they win a battle, it's, it's a good day, it's a bad day. They've understood what it means to lose and not walk with God, but they've walked with God a fair amount, and Joshua's been the leader, Caleb right beside him, and it's been a winning experience. But what would it be like if you had lifelong winning habits? That's what I want to talk about today. What if you could learn from Joshua the lifelong winning habits? Now, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14 will give us that model, but let me just tell you, those chapters also read like credits at the end of a movie. Do you ever watch a movie and then you turn it off right as the credits begin to just fly by? Because you're done watching the movie, right? If you've been in a theater and you, as the movie, the music swells and the credits begin to fly, you get up and clean up your mess and leave. You don't stay for those, do you? Because you don't know the credits. It doesn't matter to you. A long time ago and far away, uh, my parents went, retired. There was only one problem with my, my dad retiring from his job. It's that he was home all the time. Okay, ladies, that was a good time to say amen, but that, let that go. So my dad's home all the time, and, and my mom's like, George, you, got, you have to get out of the house somehow. He said, look, I can only mow the yard like three or four times a week. You, you can't just keep mowing the yard every day. It looks weird. So my dad would look for a job, and he didn't find anything. He finally finds a job. He's got a job. You know what it is? They're filming... They're outside Chicago. They're filming the, the movie Miracle on 34th Street right downtown Chicago on the Miracle Mile. If you've ever been to Chicago, there's a downtown Miracle Mile. It's got lots of shops. They decorate the stores the whole bit. And they're looking for stand-ins. They just want the crowd to be there. Well, my dad goes, I'll be there. What's it pay? Well, nothing. Well, I'll still be there. Why? Because I'm going to get out of the house. And then my dad finds that he's really in now because they're serving lunch. And somebody else is like, I'm all over this because it's got a buffet. And so they want everybody to show up in suits. My dad loves to wear a suit. He just wore a suit all the time. My dad could change oil in a car in a suit and never get it on him. He, just, he was born for a suit. Always a Hart Schaffner Marks, nice suit, great tie. Wingtips, 40-pound wingtip shoes, back when shoes were shoes, you know. Well, so my dad puts on his, his best, and they, they drive into Chicago, and and my mom decides, well, shoot, if dad can do George can do this, so can I. So she decides to go with him. So he's getting out of the house to save the marriage, and she's gone with him. I don't know, I don't know what that looks like, but to you, that doesn't make sense. 
But anyway, so they're going to get filmed for like 30 seconds in a crowd, and then they're on break for two hours. Dad goes, hey, where's the buffet? You know, so he goes to the buffet, and then they come back, and they film another 30 seconds in a crowd scene, because there's lots of shopping scenes. And as it would go, the movie, uh, if you remember the movie, uh, as it would go, it ends in a courtroom where they're trying to decide if Santa is real or not. And I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm not going to tell you how it ends. Okay? <laughs> but they're in a courtroom deciding whether or not Santa's real. My dad made the courtroom scene. Why? Well, because he had a real nice suit at the time. He looked like an attorney. I mean, he looked like an attorney in the back of the courtroom. My mom is on the clipping floor somewhere in Hollywood. She never made it, so she goes, it's just a bad movie. It's never going to sell. <laughs> so my dad's in this movie, and, it's, and I would play it for you, but it's on VHS, and we don't have that equipment here anymore. It broke sometime in the 80s. But anyway... My dad's in the movie for like three seconds, but it's the best three seconds of the movie. We play it back and forth and back and forth to our kids. <laughs> and then I want to watch the credits just in case they would ever put my dad in there because then I could say, my dad's a movie star. You know, I mean, he's in the credits. And you never would watch the credits unless you knew someone was in them, right? Guess what chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 are? They're all credits. So you and me, it's just a bunch of names we cannot say, we can't pronounce them, we don't know where they come from, we have no idea about these names. And yet, if you were Israeli, you'd be going, <laughs> play the credits, baby. My ancestry's in there, I, I can see myself. So that's how important this is. Now, what you have to understand, too, is we're going to learn a lesson here on lifelong winning habits, but in the meantime, we're also going to learn that every word of God's word is valuable. All right, having said all that, Joshua chapter 11, look with me at verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, that, that Joshua is winning all these battles, he sent word to Joab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron, uh, Akshaf. Now, I'll stop there because I, it, verse 1, we can't we don't know these guys, but I'll tell you this. Hazor is the largest city at the north end. It's a trade city. You take down this city, it is the gateway city, okay? It's where the trade goes to be like taking over the St. Lawrence Seaway coming into the U.S. Through the great, for the Great Lakes. You take over the St. Lawrence Seaway, you pretty well have the Great Lakes locked up. That was Hazor. And so this king, is what he's doing is he is going after alliances with other kings. He doesn't like the kings. He doesn't trust them. The only thing they have in common is they hate Joshua and they hate Israel. And so they're going to go after them. They're going to mount up the troop. Now, skip down to verse 4. They came out with all the troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand of the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Stop there. Joshua and Israel are going to have victory upon victory upon victory. So these guys all band together and say, we'll take you on. And they meet up north, and they're going to travel down the, the Jordan River and attack Joshua. But Joshua doesn't wait for them to come. By the way, don't miss out on the, the, very, the, the nuances of every word of the word of God. For instance, there's a huge army, numerous as the sand is the seashore. You've ever been to the shore if you've ever been on a beach for a day, you know you're shaking sand out of your shoes for a week, 
Are you not? Every day, there's new sand. You don't know how it got there. That's the way the army was. There are, there's, the army's so big. And they have, look at the text again, they have joined forces and, and they have a huge army, more than they can count. It is horses and chariots too. None of this word goes to waste, by the way. None of it. Josephus is a, a Jewish historian from first century. He speculates that there were 300,000 in this infantry. 300,000. He also speculates that there were 10,000 troops on the horses and there were 20,000 chariots. The odds of beating this army are just nil. You can't beat this group. There's so many. It's like sand at the shore. It's just more than you can count. But God doesn't waste a word. Verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, and these are the words we need to hear when we're up against the stuff we can't face. He says to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Because by this time tomorrow, I'm going to take them on. I'll, they will all be slain. All over Israel. And you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Isn't it amazing? The Lord knows exactly what we need for the moment. And, and dying isn't the issue. It's the process of dying. It's, it's that we know we're going to get taken to task by this army. It's big. And God says, don't worry. I'm with you. It'll be okay. The Canaanites pitch north. Joshua says, I'm not going to wait for you. So he marches north five days and he beats them to the punch. He actually surprises them. And before they could sweep down on him, he takes over and they, they go to battle. And by this time tomorrow, they're gone. You want to stop right there and say, why does the Bible have so much war and death and pain and blood and angst? And the answer to that is, the Bible as a whole, and the Old Testament in particular, gives us pictures, really moments, of the conflict within our own hearts. See, that's what's really happening. This did happen historically, but these are also visual illustrations of what's happening inside of our hearts, inside the hearts of mankind even today. Had these people turned to the Lord, quite frankly, I think they would have been saved. Rahab is the proof of that. But if they had laid down their swords, I think that the story would end differently, but their hearts were hard. And if you're taking notes, this is, this is really key. The issue is the hardness of the heart, and it is the issue of our own hearts, the hearts of the terrorists in France, it's the hearts of the, the people in Charles County. It's the hearts of us in the room. Our hearts could be hardened. Galatians chapter 5, you flee the flesh, what the flesh desires, because it's contrary to the spirit. The spirit is contrary to the flesh. And you're, you're in constant battle, Galatians says. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that are at war within you? They're in constant battle, James says. It's the battle within that battle is in the Old Testament for turf. But really, it's not only for turf, it's for the hearts of the people. Today, it's no different. The hearts of the people are what is really, what's at stake. So why did they destroy the chariots? Why did they hamstring the, the, the horses? Well, we don't get that. What's going on? Well, if you go back and just read a little bit of history in this particular corner of the world, you'll, you'll realize those Canaanites used horses as part of their worship. Horses were part of the pagan ritual. And so when they hamstring the horses, 
They took their strength away. And they got rid of their idol. That makes Psalm 20 make all the more sense. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. And some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the question for not Israel, but the question for us is, what is our horse? What is our, what is our idol? What's the thing that we cherish so closely that maybe no one even knows? What is it? Because if I don't disable it, it will disable me. If I do not break it, it could very well break me. Our prayer, your prayer, my prayer is that we would be able to name and know and identify the idols in our own hearts and call them for what they are, truly idols of nothing, of no good at all, and yet could really do us harm. And so Joshua lets the world know some trust in chariots, they burn. Some trust in horses, they're useless. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Well, Joshua, he stays... um, effectively splitting the country as he makes his progress into the nation. If you were to get a map of Israel, it's, it's a lot longer north to south, and it's a lot less wide east to west. It's a long country. He splits it down the middle and then takes the northern territory first. And he goes city after city, and this is why the book reads like a, kind of a telephone book, um, because it's just one city after another, and we don't, we don't know those cities. We have no history to them. But chapter 11, verse 23, really summarizes what's happening. Look with me at verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. We're about halfway into the book now. And we're realizing, and the land rested from war? Really? Why is there still more war in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15? Why is that? Well, it's because they have taken over the northern section of this land of Canaan, and now it's going to be called Israel. And they've taken it over, but there are little pockets. But everywhere they look, it's as if, you ever been in a, in a situation where you say, everywhere I look, I see this. Well, everywhere they look, there are Israelites, and so they have taken ownership of the land, but now they have to take out every little city. And now we're not just having one front. When the book started, we went after Jericho and then Ai. Now this is split out because now we're walking as a full wall. So there are lots of stories that are happening all at the same time. And Joshua, it says, took. Took the entire land. He did what God directed him to do. This is important. This is a great takeaway lesson. He completely obeyed. He didn't go to the left or to the right, Joshua chapter 1. He didn't make it up on his own. He didn't postpone what he was supposed to do either. And this is a great lesson to us. We want to live on the high road or we want to be successful people. We have to do what God has called us to do. And we can't move it to the left or to the right or postpone it or rush ahead. We have to walk with him straight up, straight on, right on all the time. He took the land just as the Lord had directed the previous leader, Moses. Secondly, he gave him an inheritance. So he provided for the next generation. Just think about it. These people had only known, they had only known constant movement. And Joshua is giving them acreage 
and a place they could put a home, place they could grow some roots, place to settle for their children and their children's children. He gives to them the blessing, really, of a great future. Thirdly, the land has rest. Rest from war. This is the place of security and the place of peace. And this is different than just a peace agreement or no war. This is total rest. That means the anguish is over. The hostility is gone. I've never traveled there, but I've, I have met people, I've talked with lots of people, who during the days of East Germany, West Germany, traveled to Eastern Europe. And they could, the, the land was peaceful, but it was not at peace. There was order, but it wasn't at rest. There was always a tension when they were in Eastern Europe. And I had more than one businessman tell me when we were flying back, the plane, uh, the pilot would say, we've now entered free airspace. And you could feel the plane go, yeah. One buddy of mine said, the plane actually clapped. They were relieved to come into free airspace because there's a tension there. Even though it's orderly and it is a society, it, it was tense because it was peace under a guard. You understand the difference? This is different than that. This is rest from war. This means no anguish. This means peace of heart. This, this means total calm. This means you could settle down and sink in and relax. Do you just see the difference? And that's what rest from war really looks like. You've been in a room where you walk in a room and you, you, you meet people and then you realize it's really tense in here. You ever had that happen? Oh, my gosh. It is so thick. You could cut it. You've heard that phrase, cut it with a knife. It's tense. Then you've been in other rooms and you don't know the difference. But the people are different. That's what he's talking about here. This is a land that is at rest from war. There is a satisfying kind of calm. And that only comes when you soften your heart to spiritual things. Now get this. Hear me well. Hebrews chapter 3. You're taking notes. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. What was the writer of Hebrews talking about? He was talking about this very passage. Because people who harden their hearts never got the rest. They never found security in a peaceful kind of lifestyle. Why? Because of their heart. Had nothing to do with the politics and the land and the turf and the city and the well and the garden and the field and the livestock. Had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the hardening of the heart. If you want your heart to be at rest, then own up. I, I am wrong. I, I'm off track. I have sinned. You know, there's, a, there's an incredible letdown that happens. And the writer of Hebrews says it again, verses 8 to 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like they did in the day of the rebellion. Well, that's chapter 11. Joshua takes the land, makes an inheritance, and they, they feel this rest from war. But it's more than just a peace contract. It is true rest, relaxation. Chapter 12. These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated. And they begin to list them. Okay, and it summarizes. This is the whole list. And they begin to list them. In chapter 12, list them. 
verse 24, skip down to 24, it's 31 kings in all. So they've got victory after victory after victory. So they're 1 and 0, 2 and 0, 3 and 0, 4 and 0, 5 and 0, 6 and 0. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 12, they're 31 and 0. That's a pretty good team, right? Now, about this time, you'd be saying, okay, we can move on to chapter 13. Not so fast, because there's an enlightening moment for us here. I've noticed something. Here's what I've noticed. When you have a favorite team, whatever that team is, and if they're winning, you tend to wear the jersey more. Don't you? Yes, you do. And when your team's losing, you tend to put away that foam finger in the trunk of the car, those little flags that hang out your car. When your team's winning, you got it going on. As if Tony Roma actually calls you to ask, what should I do this week, buddy? As if Eli were to call you and say, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Number one, he doesn't have your number. And if he did, he probably wouldn't call. That's what he told me the other day. Actually, what he said was, how did you get my number? But anyway, we wear the uniform, don't we? When we're, when we're winning. And what winning does is it stimulates more winning. Guess what losing does? Stimulates more losing. And, and that becomes the culture if you're not careful. What I think is important to get out of this text is name after name after name after name, verse after verse after verse. It's win, 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 win. And if you don't celebrate those wins, they'll get past you. They'll get beyond you. And the spiritual lesson is, is a human behavior lesson as well. We want to be part of something that is bigger, badder, somehow better than we are. Better than we would be individually but certainly bigger than we are collectively. If we don't do that, you know what happens? We go down, and you can write this off to the side. We go down what I call the Elijah complex, which is nobody is faithful to the Lord. I'm the only one who follows the Lord. Everybody else is unfaithful, and I, I'm the only one, and they're looking to kill me. God just send me home to heaven. That's the Elijah complex. Number one, it's not true. Number, number two, it's, it's a bad way to talk to yourself. Number three, it's a bad way to talk to other people. But number four, it's a bad representation of God because it's just not a good representation, but it's not true either. And so you have to decide, am I going to live the Elijah kind of thing in the complex, or am I going to live the Joshua life? Not discarding the truth, but certainly living and choosing to have perspective on the victories. Here's the warning. You will tend to get what you focus on. That's what you will get. <clears throat> There's a guy I've learned a lot from. His, name's, his name is Ken Davis. Ken is a motivational speaker, and you maybe have heard him on the radio with a little program called Lighten Up. It's about a 60-second or 120-second radio program. Not, he's on every day. Lighten Up is the name of the program. Ken Davis is his name. He's not only a motivational speaker, he's a corporate trainer, but he also trains guys in public speaking. He tells this story. And by the way, Ken's a committed Christian, a good family guy, great wife, great kids. He's just done well in life. But he tells this story. He used to live in Colorado. When he wasn't speaking or doing training events, he loved to be in the woods hunting. Now, I know for some of you, 
That perks you right up. Others, it disgusts you. So whatever that is. You have a good time today with your veggie burger. But... <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> but Ken likes to hunt. But he likes to hunt with a bow. That's, in Ken's idea, that's, that is really in the element and you're really doing it the good old-fashioned way. So he, he gets up in the morning, crawls out into the woods, takes his bow and his arrows, gets in his tree stand, waits for deer to come by. And he's wanting, a, he's wanting a big deer, lots of antlers, a big rack. He can see it over the fireplace. He's going to stuff mount this thing. Lots of, lots of more points than you can count. That's what, that's what he wants. That's what every guy wants. Most guys want. So he... He gets in the deer stand, and he's, he's been hunting forever, and finally a deer comes by with the most beautiful rack he's ever seen. And so he gets, you know, how it is, you've been in the cold, you're still a long time, your, your legs are squeaky at this point because you've not been moving. He gets into position, gets his bow out, puts an arrow in, gets it all aimed up, and looks at that rack. It is gorgeous. He can't stand it. He's seen it on the top of his fireplace already. He lets go of that arrow, and it, it, it goes whack right through the woods, directly right into the antlers. And it sticks there. And a deer, ugh, and it's like the deer goes, ugh, I've been hit, but not really. And he runs away. And to add insult to injury, he lost a really good arrow. You know what I'm talking about? He can't even retrieve the arrow. And, you could, and Ken later says, I could just imagine the deer going back with the other deer that night. Look at what the human did. The, the humans are idiots. Look at what he did. Stuck an arrow right through his antlers. But here's the lesson. You get what you aim for. And his eyes were not on the deer, they were on the antlers. And in the last moment, it's just, it's just that much movement, right? It doesn't take much movement. And you may be saying, I'm not that far off. That's right, you might not be that far off. And in the trajectory, you just miss the deer. I'm telling you, whatever you shoot for, whatever you want to go after, that, that's what you're going to get. What Joshua does in these pages is he's deathly honest with us about his failures, but I see way more space taken with the victories of life. You need wins in your life. So do I. You need a place where you know you're making a difference for good and for God's glory. You know that's the way you're wired, and so that's the way you have to think. What is it that I'm doing that really matters in people's lives forever? And whatever that is, you need to pursue that well, long, and hard. What is captivating my heart? Where am I gifted? If you don't know, come at 6 o'clock tonight. We'll help you figure that out. But what you don't want to do is sit around and count what you don't have. What you want to do is go after what you do have and exploit that for the kingdom. I'm reminded of just a week ago, I was at a men's conference with a lot of you guys, and we have a lot of people at South Potomac Church that move. They end up in Alaska and Colorado and Texas and Germany because they get moved from here. We have some that actually move right out of here into another side of the district. And that was happening. We were, the, the conference a week ago was in McLean. And 
I bumped into several guys who used to attend South Potomac, and now they're on the Virginia side. And so they're, they're, they bought houses over there, and they're living over there, and they're going to church over there. So I don't get to see them anymore. I bump into them. I say, hey, how you doing? And I ask one guy, how you doing? And I'm hoping that he's going to church because I haven't, I haven't seen him in church. He goes, oh, yeah. He said, we're in Sterling now, and he's telling me. And he goes, I'm part of a real tiny church, but it's wonderful. He's got his teenage son with him at the men's event on a Saturday. And he says, I, we're part of a real small church, but he says, I'm really loving it. And you know what? We don't have a men's ministry, but because of South Potomac's men's ministry, I'm going to start one. Uh, oh, cha-ching. That's the win. And then he says to me, hey, the men's retreat, when you do the men's retreat, would you let us know? Because we don't have enough to rent the whole camp, but we could come and we could be a part of your retreat if that's okay. And I'm looking at him going, like, that's like cash to us. That's like money. Yeah. Ten, we'll take them. You have to make our beds and cook, but we'll let you come. <laughs> Cha-ching. That's a win. Do you get that? I don't go, I don't go 100 yards. I see another guy. I go, how are you doing? He said, fine. And I knew life had been rough, and he looked at me. And there's, there's 2,000 guys this event, and so the, the halls are just packed, and People are walking their booths and there's stuff going on. He looks at me, he goes, I'm doing really well. And then he, he looks at me like, is this safe? Because there's just people going, but nobody knows anybody. He was, you know, I just happened to bump into him. He goes, and my marriage is getting better and better. I, oh, thank the Lord. He said, I don't suppose you knew about that. And I said, no, I, I didn't. I, I, I'm good at being dumb. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, oh, oh, oh. I didn't know about the whole world knew you had a bad marriage. I mean, you're the only guy who didn't know you had a bad marriage. He said, yeah, it's doing really well. We're in church. My kids love me. They love their mom. Oh, my gosh. I saw another guy, and I just lost track of him. He said, oh, yeah, we're in a church. We found a place to serve. And I'm, I, I, oh, my word, that church owes me. Because we trained him here. You know, you think about that. And then he moves to Alexandria, goes to another church. He said, my, I'm really closer on my job now. He got a different job, allowed him to uh, move and, and let him not be gone as much so it's better for his family. And he was allowed to serve. Those are the wins. You get this? And so when you read uh, chapter 12 and you go, you know, it just seems like a bunch of cities and a bunch of kings. I don't get it. Those are wins. You need to find the wins in your life. And of Thanksgiving season, of all seasons, you need to be careful for what you aim for because what you aim at, what you think about, what you talk about, that's what you shoot at. You get this? And so I want you to hate sin, but I don't want you to be always looking at sin because that's what you'll go for. You get your eyes off of the sin and put your eyes, Hebrews, on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The worst thing you can do when you're running a race is to look back to see where, where the others are running. Don't turn your head. You turn your head, you will trip. And so... Joshua runs with patience, the race set before him, and then he, he scores out these wins, and we have to do that too. I encourage you, maybe your homework assignment this week is just to write down how God's been blessing you, or how you feel blessed, or, or the way God has gifted you, and what God might be doing in your life. Chapter 13. Joshua is growing old now. The Lord says to him, you are now very old. He's 100 at this point, scholars say. He was 40 when he came up the first time with Caleb. Now he's eight, in an 80, and about 85 when he crosses the Jordan, it's been a good decade, he's at least 95, probably 100 years old. And he says there's still large areas to take, and yet you're getting up in years. 
but this chapter 13, it reads like a real estate document. It sounds like post in the ground, you know, and we're not sure, it's just boundaries and previous owners and topography, and, and we glaze over when we read this chapter. But it's not superfluous to Israel because it's, again, it's the place they call home. It's the place where their crop is going to grow and the livestock's going to roam and the families will play and, and worship together and enjoy life together. And now the families are beginning to nest. They're owning this. You know what I'm talking about? They're owning this. It's, they're making it their own. And some people, by the way, will, will say, well, we want to go back on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, which is outside of the Israeli property. But they say, we want to go over there. The grasslands are better. The hills are better bitter pastures. And Joshua says, you can do that. We need to help us fight, but we can't protect you because we've got to get across the river and there's no boundary. But the point to this is, is this. Even in the victories, it's complex. Even in the victories, it can be convoluted. Even in the victories, it, it can be messy. And you don't, you, you don't focus on all that mess. You just have to deal with it as best you can. All that to say, since life is so complicated, even in victory, which is not simple, and it is messy, and it is cluttered, we have to put our eyes on the right stuff. Chapter 14, verse 6 now. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, there's an important name to get, Caleb, great name, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about me? And he says, I was 40 years old when we came to this property, and God, God's will was that we take it, and they didn't take it, but I did what the Lord commanded. I followed the Lord wholeheartedly, verse 8. Wouldn't that be great if you were able to say that when you get to heaven? I followed you, Lord, wholeheartedly. So on that day, verse 9, Moses swore to me that the land which your feet walk on will be an inheritance for your children forever, forever. Ever. That's hard to explain to people, isn't it? Because you have followed the Lord. Caleb is now probably close to 100 as well. He's been faithful to the Lord, and he wants a piece of the land. He's saying, I, I'm not going to live much longer, Joshua. Give it to me now. I'll take the hill country. Give it to me. I'll, I'll take it. And Moses had promised him that everywhere he could put his foot, he could have. So he says, I'm, I'm ready to start marching. Give it to me. So Chapter 14, verse 13. Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. This is important to get this. He gives him this land, this region, as an inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, the son, has belonged to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since. And why? Because he followed the Lord. You get this? He gets the inheritance. And he gets it because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, and he did that wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Get this, they're actually documented. It sounds like the real estate. This is what it used to be called. And the land, here it is again, interesting enough, has rest from war. The land has rest from war. Get this. Caleb receives the blessing as an inheritance and he's going to pay it forward for his kids and his children's children. But he doesn't keep it there. The blessing continues to follow. Why? Because he follows the Lord. And what happens is wherever Caleb goes, 
the land finds peace. Think about that. Why? Because he's a man of God. Well, there are, there are some takeaways from this. We'll stop at the end of, 15, of 14. There are some transferable concepts that take us from Joshua and Caleb all the way to you and me. Here they are. Number one lesson that we're learning is we have to follow the Lord completely and we cannot back off, we cannot hesitate, we cannot postpone, we can't mix God's will with our will and expect it to work well. It does not work. We have to follow and when we follow, we cannot lose. You want a winning lifestyle? Begin with step number one. Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will fall into its rightful place. Set your affection on things above, Colossians 3. You, you follow the Lord completely. Number two, pursue what God's calling you to do. For, Ke- for Joshua and Caleb, it was settling the land. For Caleb in particular, it was an inheritance. But what's God called you to do? And then what stage are you in the calling? You, is it a prep stage, work stage, conquering stage, detail stage? Is it a legacy stage? Are you handing it off to the next generation? So, Figure that out. What are the stages? Pursue what God's calling you to. And, and understand this. He does have a will for your life. And if you don't know your gift mix, you don't know all that kind of stuff, that's, this is the time to figure that out. Because you have been blessed. And point number three, people have put you in the place of blessing to, to bless you before you got here. Recognize the blessing that got you to the place where you are today. Realize, you didn't get to this point without help. The people of Israel had the blessings. They ate the oranges from the orchard that they never planted. You get this? Someone else planted that. They ate the figs. They ate the the olives. Whatever it would be. They took the grain from fields they never planted. And so it is with you and me. We received the blessing from the previous generation of Christians. And we reap a harvest, a bounty in this season of Thanksgiving. You need to thank God for the people who brought you to Jesus and brought you along the way, who helped you get a Bible or helped you get into church. And maybe it was just in passing because you are blessed. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for others. Which then leads me to number four is to pass on that blessing to the next generation. And that's what Joshua and Caleb both did. We are not here to simply receive the blessing and we live in a consumer mindset, don't we? It's a consumer kind of society where we, we take the blessing, receive it, and then consume it. Israel ate the fruit and then began to plant for the next generation. They enjoyed the blessings and the victories and then they began to work towards the next generation and for the next maybe two or three hundred years. So you have to ask yourself the question, what am I planting for the next generation? What's the blessing I hope to send forward? Number five, enjoy the rest that comes from the the Lord. Just the the plain old, good old rest of heart that comes when the anguish is over and the seething hostility is gone. Where you're not under pressure, but you're under the place of peace. It's a satisfying kind of calm. Find the places where the war in your heart 
you know, this is, it's true. In, in any war, you, you conquer a city, but there's still going to be pockets. You conquer your life, there's still going to be pockets. Find the pockets where there's still in conflict, where there's still a war, where there's still some kind of conflicted message or wrong thought, and name it, get victory over it, make steps for that victory, and then go for it. Go for it. I'm reminded as I close um, of just some verses, and they run in parallels so sweetly. Colossians chapter 2. My goal is that you be encouraged of heart and united in love. So you have rest. Get that? Just have rest. In Colossians chapter 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts. Another version says, set your affection on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Just set your heart there. Lord, you have my heart. Wow, I want my heart to be at rest. So take it fully. May I follow you wholly. Chapter 3, again, verse 15 and 16. So let the peace of Christ rule. And that's what we pray for in our hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and then be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs in the spirit, singing to God, again, with gratitude in your heart. There's real peace in your heart when the Prince of Peace rules. Some of us have trusted Christ, and yet there's this ongoing conflict. I'm going to encourage you, go for the Prince of Peace. Some of us have never even accepted Christ. This is the day. Trust him. Allow him into your life. And he will rule if you allow him in. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, um, we don't want to miss this opportunity. The opportunity to, to do business with you, to say, God, we want you to rule and reign in our hearts. For some in the room, this is the prayer. Father in heaven, I, I need Jesus to be my savior because I, I don't have him in my life. I need to save him from my sin because I, I am in conflict with myself and I need supernatural help. Help me, oh God. Save me. Because we all want to live with a winner kind of lifestyle. We don't want to be losers, Lord. Thank you for giving us the model and the path. May we be the people who pursue it well and give up our own little agendas to follow you fully, we pray. And we know that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, so we will be overcomers. And we won't go back. We will pursue the high calling of it's yours in Christ Jesus. We'll do that together, Lord, to your glory. And so we thank you for what you'll do in our lives, even as we do serious business with you. We pray in Jesus' name. The church says, amen. Amen.